Hey guys, hope you're having a fantastic day today. I am going to tell you a story at the end about my duck. So if anybody does listen to the end, um, I'll tell you a fun story. But today's topic I picked was parvovirus. So parvovirus, we I've dealt with a lot. Like I dealt with a lot in Southern California. And you know even what we see here, you'd think of it as being a lot here, but that's nothing compared to like what Southern California has for their parvovirus. So know quite a bit about it and there's still even things that I've learned that I didn't know about about parvovirus. So I kind of wanted to go over parvovirus with you and all the interesting crazy things that it does as well. So parvovirus as it suggests is a virus. Viruses are hard because you can't give a special pill to make it go away. Like think about bacterial infections. If the dog has a bacteria I can give antibiotics for that bacteria. But viruses, you can't do that. You can't give antibiotics for a virus. It doesn't work that way. So there are multiple types of, of parvovirus. The most common one is going to be the canine parvovirus type 2. And there are subtypes to that. So there's canine parvovirus type 2, A, B, and C. Now, we actually first found canine parvovirus in Europe in 1976. Uh, they had... It found that this became just a worldwide epidemic and caused tons of death in dogs. And they think that it actually came from cats. So they found a very closely related virus called panleukopenia, feline panleukopenia. And this is why we're able to do those parvo tests on cats to look for panleukopenia because they're very closely related. But we found that in the 1920s. So then they think that between 1920 and 1970, the virus was able to mutate several times to be able to then be, be a host in dogs. But um, after that, you know, we started learning about this canine parvovirus in dogs. They did, did come up with a vaccine for it. And we'll kind of talk about that later because the vaccine is very interesting as to who it actually does help or not. But the animals that are usually the most affected are going to be puppies. So this is typically going to be young puppies, um, usually between six weeks and 20 weeks old. And that's usually because of the fact that they're not vaccinated for it. So we find this, this parvovirus usually in the environment or it can be transferred from dog to dog or it can be transferred in feces to dog. So if you go to a dog park, it could be at the dog park in the soil. It could be that one dog goes over to another dog who has parvovirus and just them sniffing each other can, you know, usually they like sniffing their butt, right? That definitely can cause them to have parvovirus if that if now gets onto their fur. It could be in dog bowls. It can be on the the environment like you're wearing so like on your clothes on your shoes it could be on kennels it could be on rocks i mean this thing can be everywhere and really who gets parvo depends on lots of different things so one of the things is going to be their immune status so we know in puppies we've talked about this before with the vaccines you know their immunity is comes from their mom first and that kind of goes away while the immunity from the own puppy's body then starts to increase as we give vaccines. But those puppies are really susceptible to it because as moms 
as mom's immunity is going away, you know, their body is not responding well enough yet to be able to get rid of parvo. And parvo is really hard for the body to get rid of, which again, we'll go into in a minute. But so that, that's one immunocompromised way is that we don't have enough of the immunity, whether you don't have mom's immunity or they, whether they don't have puppy's immunity. Another way is that if they have an immunocompromised system, so let's say that dog has some disorder that it has to be on like prednisone, which really high doses of prednisone can cause immunosuppression, or maybe it has, you know, an autoimmune disorder, like all of those things can cause them to have a lowered immune system or some other disease. Like I've definitely actually even had a foreign body that was also parvo. Like how crazy is that? And then another big thing is going to be just to how much of the the parvovirus that pet was exposed to. So you could just have a dog who was properly vaccinated exposed to a ton of that parvovirus and the body just cannot fight it off. So that's another way. All right, so how does it happen? So the dog is then exposed, right? And it takes about three to seven days for an incubation period. So that means the dog is exposed and it takes three to seven days before it starts showing symptoms. It's doing its damage inside the body, but we don't show symptoms for that three to seven days. So what happens is that parvovirus goes immediately into the tonsils and into the lymph nodes of the neck. It goes in there so it can start replicating, especially in those lymph nodes. They're going to be creating um, and having all these white blood cells that are going there. And so those parvovirus go hitch a ride inside lymphocytes. So they love white blood cells, especially lymphocytes, because then the body can't detect it. If you're hidden inside, it's like basically camouflaged or inside like a little Trojan horse, right? If you hide in a Trojan horse and you get yourself into the wall, you're going to be able to then attack the city or the body, right? So same thing with this parvovirus is it goes into the inside the white blood cells. The body doesn't know that it's there. All it sees is just that there's a white blood cell. It's not going to attack its white blood cell for no reason, unless it has some other disorder, but it's going to just leave it alone. And now that parvovirus is able to start replicating inside the white blood cell, and then it kills off the white blood cell. When it does that, now it is in the bloodstream. So as soon as that happens, it starts creating more and more copies of itself as well, and then going to other places. So it starts going to places that are going to replicate very quickly. Now think about a puppy. Puppies are growing, so they're replicating like mad, right? Like they're trying to get all of their cells dividing very quickly, so that, that way they can make more things, they can grow. So they have a lot of replication that's happening, so they're really heavily hit. But it goes into the bloodstream, and it goes over to, like I said, those really rapidly dividing cells. One of those places is the bone marrow. The bone marrow is one of the parts that makes more white blood cells. So if you suppress your bone marrow, you can't make more white blood cells to fight off this virus now. So that's one of the things that Parvo does to try to help make sure that that dog becomes really sick. Another way is it goes to the intestines. So it goes to the walls of the intestines, 
Um, if you think of like the walls of the intestines having these little villi or these little um, wavy hands, basically, at the bottom of those wavy hands are something called a crypt. And that's where a lot of like mucus is formed. Like it's the, kind of the more thinner areas. And there's lots of stuff that happens there. You have a lot of like fluid that gets moved back and forth. But that's where it wants to to kill off is the ends of those little wavy hands um, called the crypts. And then the other place that people don't commonly know about is that it affects the heart as well. So it will go to the heart and it will start causing something called myocarditis, which means that there is inflammation of the heart. When that happens, it can cause things like an arrhythmia, so it, and it causes the heart not to be able to function correctly. So the heart is not beating correctly and then can kill off them, kill off the puppies that way. This most commonly affects the small puppies, so like neonatal puppies, rather than the larger puppies, but still can happen in a large puppy. Just not, it's like really, really rare when it comes to adults. So when the virus goes and attacks the small intestines, it does lots of things there. Like I said, it wants to attack there because it's really crucial. Like that's a barrier so that that way your intestines don't lose a lot of fluid. It also keeps all the bacteria out of your of your bloodstream. And so if it can break down those walls, so if it can break down those little crypts of your small intestines, it makes it so that all the bacteria that normally lives inside the intestines can now go invade other places. And it goes into the bloodstream to wreak havoc. So now not only do we have the virus causing a problem, we now also have bacteria causing a problem. It also tries, when it's attacking the crypts, it's also attacking those little wavy hands. Those little wavy hands mostly deal with trying to absorb uh, nutrients and it cuts those down, which makes this even worse because that's where all the bleeding is coming from. So when we see our puppies that have, you know, intestinal bleeding or having diarrhea that has blood in it, that's because that wall of the intestines is being broken down, especially those little wavy hands. And they can't really, like, if the body is trying to replenish them, that means more dividing of cells, which that parvo is going to now keep attacking. So all of that leads to some of the symptoms that we see. Right, So we'll typically see them become really lethargic and dumpy. So that's when it's like attacking the tonsils and the white blood cells. They just feel terrible. And then it goes over to the intestines. And when it's attacking the intestines, we have vomiting, diarrhea, bloody diarrhea. They become really dehydrated. And then they can go into things like septic shock, where that bacteria goes into the bloodstream and causes them to not be able to function. All of their their organs start to shut down. It also causes really severe dehydration and fevers. And think about the fact that we don't have our white blood cells anymore to be able to fight off all the bacteria and the viruses. Those bacteria take over and it causes really high fevers in these guys. So... When we're looking at those symptoms, you know, they're very progressive. It typically starts with like, like I said, not feeling very well. They're lethargic. Maybe they're not eating. Progresses to vomiting, diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, and sometimes blood in the vomit. And then can even progress to death, unfortunately. So how do we diagnose this? So I'm sure most people have seen that we've had to go out and do the 
fecal test. So you put the swab into the anus and you want to get the sample that way. Ideally, that's kind of the best way to do it rather than taking it from a from a fecal sample because if you go to swab the fecal sample and there's just not enough in that fecal sample, then you're just not going to get enough in in your your swab to be able to test positive. And you don't know when they brought it in. Maybe they brought it in from like three days ago feces versus the feces that you're going to get right straight from the dog. So that's why we want to do a rectal sample and not just like a fecal sample. But it goes into a test called an ELISA test. Uh, ELISA stands for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. Um, all it means is that it, when we go to get the parvo on that little swab, you put it into the solution with the blue solution, right? That blue solution has a couple of things in it. It has a antibody for parvo. So it has something that the lab has created to be able to go and tag the parvovirus. It goes to it. If there's a parvovirus, the antibody finds it and it is now clinging to it. The other thing that it puts in there is going to be a color changer. So if there is an antibody parvo that is inside that fluid that you put into that little blue tube, into that tube with the blue solution, then it's going to change color when you put it into the test. So you mix up your solution, you pour it into the test, and then when into that little well, and then when it goes all the way up the strip, that's all of that fluid is going all the way up the strip so that the parvo can hopefully be detected in that strip. And then we snap it down, and then we check to see if that blue line shows up. Now there's always going to be a control, but then there's going to also be the, the actual test itself. Sometimes they're a line, sometimes it's a dot. It just kind of depends on which test you're using. But there's always going to be one control that should be positive that tells you that the test is working. And then there's going to be a second line or dot that's going to tell you if it's going to be positive or not. Now, remember when we went back to saying that we have parvovirus A, B, and C? So most times A and B are pretty easily picked up on this test. Technically, when you look at all of the data, they say that C can be picked up on the test easily as well. But what we have come to find is that it's not that easily picked up. Like in the clinics, most of the time you're going to have this dog that looks like parvo, it smells like parvo, you know, the blood work looks like it's parvo. It is it's clear to us that it is parvo, but it is negative on that test, that SNAP test, every single time we do it. And the reason why is because of that C subtype. It's a newer one, and it's just kind of like with, you know, with COVID, how we have different subtypes there. Like they just, the COVID virus just keeps changing a little bit. And that's what's happening with this type is that the parvovirus changes just a little bit. So that, that way it cannot be recognized as a parvovirus on our tests and then we won't get a positive on it. But the next best way to be able to do it is to send out something called a PCR or a polymerase chain reaction. What it does basically is it is looking for tiny pieces of DNA from Parvo. And if it detects those teeny tiny pieces, I mean, these can be like really small pieces that they're finding. If it detects it, then it will come back as being positive. Now, the hard part about PCRs is it's not an instant thing. You know, our SNAP test, that is what, 15 minutes at most that you have to be able to run that test. 
But you can't do that with your PCRs. It's going to take a lot longer. We have to wait for it to be sent out, and then it gets to the lab, and they have to run the test. So by the time we get it back, it's been like five days, seven days sometimes before we actually know if that dog had parvo or not. Which we've definitely had that happen in the hospital before. Like, you know, we've definitely had that dogs where we've just kind of been like, we think it's parvo. We're not really sure. We've sent out this diarrhea panel that has the parvo PCR on it. And then it's that dog has now been all over the hospital, in x-ray, out on the floor, out in the in the potty yard. And that was five days worth of that because we didn't know for sure at that time that it was parvo. But the other thing we can sometimes do is, like I said, looking at blood work. If you have your blood work that looks like the dog is leukopenic or lymphopenic. So leukopenic means low white blood cells. Lymphopenic means low lymphocytes, which are just a very specific white blood cell. If we see that, then we're even more convinced that this dog probably has parvo and we should just treat it as such. So how do we treat them now? So most of the time, the best way to treat them is going to be to hospitalize them. Like I said, there's no pill that I can give that's just going to make parvo go away. It's unfortunately just going to be that we have to just treat the symptoms and help support their system so that their own immune system can then take over. So we're doing that by putting them on IV fluids so we can rehydrate them. Because remember how before I was talking about how they the small intestines lose a lot of water. So if I try to just give water to the dog or Pedialyte or whatever it is, um, the dog's not going to be able to absorb it because we the virus is killing off all those crypts so we can't absorb those things. And then sometimes we'll put in an NG tube. So that stands for a nasogastric tube or a nasoesophageal tube. All that means is we put a tube that goes inside the nose down into the esophagus or the stomach, just depending on where we can. Sometimes with puppies, ideally, I will always put it into the stomach if possible. So that way I can suction out fluid as well if I need to. Some people do not. They will only put it into the esophagus. And when we do that, we can't suction out the fluid, but you can feed them. So either way, with either one of those tubes, our goal is to also hopefully to be able to feed them, to get nutrients into them. Um, like I said, it can't really absorb a lot, but it can coat that intestine so that hopefully we can stop the virus from being able to even like attach to those crypts. It's also going to provide them with more proteins. A lot of times these guys drop in their proteins because they can't absorb it really well. So we're hoping that we're getting more into them so that they will have more proteins. If they have less proteins in their blood, they're going to start producing more diarrhea, more vomiting, and they might even have um, edema that forms, so fluid in their arms or their legs that form because they can't keep all of that fluid in, unfortunately. Another thing we're going to do is we're going to put them on IV antibiotics. So those antibiotics are not for the virus. That antibiotic is specifically going to be for those bacteria that's in the GI system. So the GI system always has bacteria in there. It has useful things. Like it does a lot of, of good for trying to help break down foods and whatnot. But they're usually able to just stay in the small intestines or in the colon because of the fact that we have that barrier by the crypts and these little wavy arms, the villi, 
And when that barrier is gone, they have like free range. They're like a little kid in a candy store. They're like, they're off. They're gone. They're going to find, you know, all the candy that in the world and become going a sugar high. But all of that bacteria is going into the bloodstream. And that's what's going to cause sepsis. So sepsis is bacteria in the bloodstream. Because that means that bacteria can now go anywhere. Before it was just in the GI system, but now it could go to the brain, it could go to the kidneys, it can go to the liver, it can go wherever it wants. And it's going to cause all those organs to shut down. And that's called septic shock. So giving these antibiotics to hopefully suppress the bacteria so that it won't cause that septic shock. And then other things that we might do are going to be like antiemetics. So that's going to be the Serenia or Ondansetron or both. So we're trying to help them not be nauseous and stop the vomiting. We're giving Reglin. So Reglin is, <clears throat> is also called metoclopramide. And the whole point of it is to try to help the small intestines move. It doesn't really work on the stomach as well. There, we have other drugs like Cisapride that work on the stomach better. But with Reglin, it helps the small intestines move because when the intestines are not hydrated, it causes ileus, and ileus means that they're in the intestines won't move. It doesn't have peristalsis, which is the movement of intestines. So if nothing can move through, then we're just going to get a backup of fluid into the stomach. And the stomach is always creating fluid. It's not like we've given them fluid. It's just the stomach is, is creating it. And so that's why we're vomiting up all this bile and fluid that keeps coming back up. So we give them reglin to try to help move all that stuff from the stomach into the small intestines. Sometimes you might see us give a blood transfusion or a plasma transfusion. The blood transfusion is going to be for those dogs who are anemic or not having enough red blood cells. Because if you don't have enough red blood cells, um, you're not going to be able to get enough oxygen. If you don't have enough oxygen, again, your body's just going to shut down. And then plasma, so just real quick what plasma is is when you think about the fluid that's in your vessels, your blood vessels, part of it is going to be red blood cells. It's roughly about half usually. And the other part of it is going to be this fluid that has water, it has nutrients in it, it has electrolytes, it has, it has proteins in it, um, it has white blood cells, it has clotting factors, and it has a lot of things in it. So, Sometimes when we have dogs who are like excessively bleeding or their their proteins are really dropping, even though we're, we've already put them on an NG tube, um, sometimes we'll give them plasma to try to help boost their their clotting time, or sorry, their clotting factors, or help boost their platelet counts. Um, something to try to help just support them. So what happens in the hospital is they're usually there for about five to seven days. Some dogs have left really early. We've definitely had dogs who left in three days and they did great. But there's other dogs who have also left after two weeks and did terrible. And there's some dogs who don't leave at all because they didn't do well. But the typical time period is about five to eight days. And so I always tell people they need to be, they need to know that this is the time period because there's a chance that either they're not going to get their dog back or it's going to go a lot longer. But if they get their dog back in three days, fantastic. You know, if the dog does great, that's, that's great. But that's not the typical. The typical is going to be about five to seven days. And they're always going to be worse before they're better. So they might start out with just like 
vomiting here and there. They still seem like they're bright and alert, but it's going to progress. Like it's going to progress to that bloody diarrhea. It's going to progress to them just feeling terrible. Like it's always going to get worse before their body can kick in their immune system and try to get better. The next big thing with this was outpatient treatment. So if they can't hospitalize, because hospitalization is really expensive, right? If they can't hospitalize, the next best thing we have is outpatient treatment. So that means we're showing them how to give sub-Q fluids. We're sending them home with the antiemetics, so serenia. We're sending them home with antibiotics like clavamox, sometimes Batrol, metronidazole, all these things to try to help support their system. And then also too, we might also give dewormers, whether this is in the hospital or outpatient treatment, because there are other things that can happen too. So like sometimes if the pet was not dewormed properly or had a dewormer, but maybe we suspect a different type of worm, we want to try to help protect that dog against other things that are also going to cause problems because all of those parasites, those internal parasites are just sucking the nutrients from them. So if we're giving them nutrients to try to help with the parvo, but the worms or the parasite is just sucking all of that that nutrients from them, then really there's no point. So a lot of times we're still giving them some sort of dewormer, whether we find worms in their stool or not, because we want to try to help make sure we give them the best possible chance of getting through this. But at home care is not as good, right? So if you were to hospitalize, the chances of survival are roughly about 75%. You'll actually see in the literature that there's a wide variety. Um, I believe that Dr. K used to quote one of the papers that was 90%. I've never seen 90% of them survive, but that was a paper. And then there's another paper that says only 40% of them survive. Um, I definitely have seen more than 40% of them survive. So my rough estimate is usually around 75% chance of survival. And again, that depends on all these other things. Does the dog become septic? Does the dog have parasites. Um, there can also be like things like intussusceptions where the intestines kind of envelope in on each other and cause the intestines to die. We have to account for all of those things that could potentially happen as well. If they try outpatient treatment, outpatient treatment is roughly about a 50% survival. Not as good as hospitalization, but something, right? Because if you didn't treat them at all, if you didn't do anything for them, the chances of survival are 10%. That is a 90% chance that that dog is going to die. So if somebody doesn't think that they can do at-home treatment on them and they can't hospitalize them, then I always suggest to euthanize them because we don't want that dog to suffer. If only 10% of them are going to survive. That is not good enough odds for me to be able to try to give that dog a chance of doing nothing. What is the best way then to help prevent this? So prevention is going to be through vaccines. Not all the vaccines are going to be 100% effective. So one big problem is that people, especially during COVID, weren't getting their dogs into being seen at the clinics. And so they were just giving them vaccines themselves. So they were going to feed stores, which probably weren't housing those vaccines correctly. You know, when we get them, they should be shipped on ice. They go into the refrigerator right away. They shouldn't be sitting out. So if they're not handled correctly, um, that's going to lose all the efficacy from that vaccine. They also might not give it correctly. Like they, some people think that they just give one vaccine and they're done. The puppy's series is, is over. They're like, I gave the vaccine. It should be immune now. But 
Remember the vaccine talk that I gave um, on one of the earlier podcasts about how mom's immunity is really high in the beginning. And then as her immunity is kind of dwindling out of their system, the puppy's own immunity needs to start increasing to the point of being well prepared for parvo. And we do that by giving the vaccines. So it should be that they start between like six to eight weeks old and they get it every three to four weeks until they're 16 weeks old. That's how we know that the dog's mother's immunity is gone and their immunity has definitely taken over. After that, it's just a booster at one year and then again every three years after that. Other big ways that we're going to help prevent this is going to be just cleaning things. Like, you know, I had a dog the other week that it was that the guy had two puppies that were unvaccinated. Well, if that puppy who came in was at Parvo, then the other puppy is almost surely going to get Parvo as well. So some of the things to do there is just to try to help teach them like how to clean things. It's on every surface, literally every surface. Like I said, it can be on your shoes. It can be on your clothes. And that's why we do all of that stuff for isolation. We put them in a separate room so that we keep them isolated. It could be on the kennels. It could be on the grates. It could be on the doors. Like it could be on all of those things. So wearing your protective gear is going to be the best thing that you can do for all the puppies who are not parvo positive and who do not have you know a good immune system right now. So wearing the gown, wearing the boots. So that, that way, when you walk in there, even just to turn the pump on and off, like you're still wearing gloves. So that way you're not moving that parvo from one place to another. Because if it goes outside of the clinic, then it's now pretty much all throughout the hospital at that point. You have it on your shoes, it's everywhere. And how we clean for Parvo is usually going to be that we use, you should use one part bleach to 30 parts of water. The reason why is because not everything is going to kill Parvo. And this is something that the owners can easily get at home to be able to kill it. Um, don't use things like Lysol, like Lysol is not going to kill it. Evergreen or whatever they're called is not going to kill it. Um, it's got to be for at home stuff. It's got to be that it's bleach. And they need to bleach pretty much everything that that puppy has come into contact with if they can. You know, all the bedding, bleach the bleach the um, bowls that it ate out of, bleach the water things that they drank out of. I don't suggest to people to bleach their their yard so not to bleach like their grass or anything that's really not going to be like that helpful but especially because of the fact that if they have a really big yard there's no way to know where that puppy pooped and it's pretty much everywhere so you're not going to want to kill your whole grass and everything for it at, at that point it just has to be that hopefully we've got enough rain that it's going to help dilute out some of that parvo and that it's going to have sunshine to be able to kind of help kill off some of that virus as well even then, it could still, in certain environments, live in the soil for six years. That's a long time, right? So like if you have a sunny area, then great, it's more likely to be killed off. But if you have a shady area, like my whole yard is a shady area. There's like not a lot of sun that comes in here. So if I had a dog with parvo, like it pretty much would just live in this soil for six years. So I usually recommend for people also just don't get a a puppy. Like don't get any more puppies for six for six years. Or if you to get a puppy, make sure it is one that is fully vaccinated. 
from a veterinarian, not from the feed stores and not from the owners doing it, but like fully vaccinated from the veterinarian. So that way you have less of a chance of that dog, that puppy that's coming in there picking up parvovirus. And then other things for us are just going to be like just educating the client on all of these things. You know, whether this is from general practice to to the technicians who are checking people in, you know. So some people get really offended. They're like, well, I've given my dog all of its vaccines. There's no way it can have parvovirus. But, but if we don't test those dogs and they do end up having parvovirus, we've brought them into the clinic. Now it is everywhere, right? And we're exposing so many other dogs to this. So we want to try our best to, you know, vac- to test every one of them that is potentially a parvo dog. You know, sometimes I'll even just talk to the owners about how uh, it's really for other dog safety for us not to, for us to know whether that dog has parvo or not. All right. Well, I think I have gone into everything there. That's quite a lot for parvo, I know. Um, but hopefully that gives you a better understanding of some of the things like how the virus affects them. The fact that it doesn't just affect the GI system, that it also affects the heart. Uh, those are really interesting things. Also with the vaccine, you know, it's supposed to be that it's supposed to help cover that Parvo2C. But again, you know, I've definitely seen a lot of dogs who have been fully vaccinated and still got Parvo. So all the studies, I wouldn't say could be completely right because we definitely have Parvo that we're not being able to test for and that the vaccines are not necessarily covering for. And those are the usually going to be like the adults that get that one, which really sucks because they really, you know, those people did everything right. But unfortunately, just some people are going to get it just the same as like with COVID, right? I, I got all of my COVID vaccines. I got the boosters. It was terrible. I had terrible reactions to it, but I still got them and I still ended up with COVID and it was still pretty bad. So you just, you just don't know who's going to get them or not. So just, you know. One, another way to explain that to owners so that they're not offended when you're trying to get a parvo test for them. All right, now my story about the duck. So my duck, uh, Ruth is her name, she hurt her leg. Uh, it was super swollen. I don't know why, I don't know how she did it, uh, but ducks do often have problems with their tendons. So my best guess is that she hurt her tendons somehow. But I brought her in to get x-rays because I wanted to make sure it wasn't like a really bad infection in the bone. So osteomyelitis is that's what it's called. And luckily it's not just, just, just swelling again, soft tissue injury. And Ken did, did a physical therapy on her. So she got to do the, the, the little things where they like crawl over the, the tubing and she stood on a little balance ball. Um, if you guys, want you should go and ask him to like see the videos it's really cute and she loves lettuce so she was really excited to like do the obstacle course for him for lettuce and he did like laser therapy on her and put her in the treadmill it's just freaking adorable but super nice as well she's definitely feeling better she's not limping as much i know that some people saw her just like even holding her leg up but it's definitely a lot better now so really cool story thank you ken i appreciate it and so does ruth All right, guys, if you have any questions, let me know. I'm happy to answer them for you. And hopefully this one wasn't too long. I also just wanted to give a shout out to some of the people who have been listening super consistently. Um, April and her husband, Chris, thank you for listening. It's 
you've definitely listened the most, so I really appreciate that. And also our Jordans, so Jordan Jacob and Jordan Smith, uh, both of you guys, I appreciate that as well. And let me know if you have any questions, if you have any topics that you want to listen to. You know, like I said, I'm more than happy to go over any topics that you guys want. And one quick note of apology. Um, I had my heater on in my little office area, and I didn't realize that I had so much buzzing behind it. So I'm really sorry if you hear a lot of buzzing uh, on this episode. I will make sure to not have that on for future ones. I just preheat the room or something. But yeah, I realized after I was starting to listen back to it that there was a lot of buzzing behind there and figured out it was my heater. So again, I'm sorry about that, guys. I will make sure not to do that in the future. All right, I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks again.